How can we as healthcare practitioners move from just providing disease management to providing true healthcare? That is the question, and this is the answer. Welcome to Reinvent Healthcare, the podcast that helps you grow your practice and expand your skills as a practitioner. I'm Dr. Rita Marie Loscalzo. Let's dive in. Welcome back to Reinvent Healthcare, the podcast for wellness-minded people and professionals who are passionate about changing this broken medical system that's disease-focused into a true healthcare system. I'm Dr. Rita Marie Loscalzo, and I'm excited to share with you a podcast episode today that's kind of a condensed version of a two-part series that we did a long time ago. And it's an oldie but a goodie. And it combines some fascinating information about the effects of the microbiome and why it's so important to help your clients to get their microbiomes balanced for optimal health and wellness because of its impact on the whole system, the brain, the gut, the skin, the immune system, and so much more. And our guest, Steph Jackson, shares some fascinating information about the microbiome. So without further ado, here you go. On today's episode, we're going to explore functional foods for microbiome balance. We need to feed ourselves for optimal health. It's an important thing that we need to teach our clients how to eat for balanced hormones and balanced body systems to support mitochondria and feed their brains. But we also need to teach them how to feed the critters living in their gut. And it's more than just having them choose a probiotic from the refrigerated section of the health food store. It's so much more, and that's what we'll be exploring today with our guest, Steph Jackson. We'll be discussing things like how to make sure your clients know how to get the variety of carbohydrates needed for a healthy microbiome, the phytonutrients necessary for butyrate production, and how to use fermentation to change everyday foods for a variety of gut healing benefits. A healthy gut requires the right nourishment to function optimally and support a diverse population of microorganisms. Microbiome imbalances lead to a lot of the issues our clients faced, and the symptoms are often far-reaching, not just in the gut. Steph is one of our certified nutritional endocrinology practitioners. She's an expert in gut health and fermented foods and is often lovingly called the Gut Whisperer, by members of our community. She's a sought-after coach in our Energy Recharge Inner Circle and is the founder of a community called the Friendly Flora Collective. Steph is changing the way we think about holistic digestive health. She's done water fasts, juice fasts, pumpkin fasts. She's quit jobs, left partners, and relocated all for her health. She's read everything from spiritual nutrition to Chinese medicine formulations to advanced phytotherapy to the textbook of clinical and functional medicine. She studied herbalism, aromatherapy, color therapy, functional nutrition, and nutritional endocrinology. She got sick and then she got better by harnessing the power of her body to heal itself with the help of the microbiome. She even created her own yogurt that sold in Canada so that she could share the tremendous healing potential of probiotic-rich living foods. After applying everything she learned through designing her own yogurt, 
her life completely changed. She believes that it's through working with all of our bacteria that will achieve dynamic, lasting health, and that wellness can manifest if we get out of the war with ourselves in our internal and external environment. According to Steph, unless you address the diversity of the microbiome, lasting and robust health will remain elusive. Welcome, Steph. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Rita Marie. I'm really excited for today, too. Yes. So we have some topics to discuss, don't we? Yes. <laughs> yeah. So billions, many billions, billions of them. <laughs> I really would love to start by talking about some of the ways that the foods we eat affect the microbiome. Okay, thank you. I think that's an awesome place to start just so that uh, before we start talking about how we can use food to make change, um, I want to underscore why it's so important and what can go wrong, you know? Yep. Let's just talk about maybe resistant starch first. So we all know resistant starch is good. Uh, it's good for your clients to improve their short-chain fatty acid production. If, if we're not consuming or if your clients are not able to consume enough resistant starch, um, they might have reduced bifidobacteria and they might have less butyrate specifically, which is so important for our gut lining integrity, for our metabolic balance, for our sleep schedule. Um, butyrate does a lot uh, in the body. And specifically, there are some bacteria that get decreased when we are not able to consume enough resistant starch. Um, so there's the Fecalibacterium prosnitsi, the Clostridium leptum, and the Roseburia. If you're doing gut tests on your client, you may have seen the Roseburia come up on, on some of them. And, and you know that resistant starch is one of the types of fiber, right? There's a whole spectrum of, of different types of carbohydrates that, that your clients would optimally be able to tolerate on a healthy diet. Um, and if there's just too little fiber in general, there's going to be a decrease in the bifidobacterium, which are kind of the grandmother bacteria that take care of the, the large intestine colony, should be up to, well, even more, but 10% of our bacteria in a healthy individual would be the bifidobacterium, and only 2% would be the lacto. Um, which is usually quite flipped around, um, but with just not enough fiber in general. That's a huge difference. And, you know, when we buy yeah. probiotics at the health food store, even if you're buying the ones in the refrigerated section or good names, to have that difference, because they're definitely not that much bifido compared to, as you said, 10%. 10% bifido and between 1% and 2% of lactobacillus in our whole gut colony. Okay. So we really need to be focusing on this bifido. Yes. And so are you saying that those bifido grow better when there's more of this fiber? Yes. They, they need it to survive. So to thrive, they need the fiber, the resistant starch, and they need colorful plant foods. They they need those phytonutrients. But to just be there at all, they really need a spectrum of fiber being consumed. Interesting. So it's not enough to just take a probiotic. It's not enough to go get some psyllium or metamucil for fiber, which a lot of them are doing. We need to eat the good, the rainbow, basically. Exactly. And lots of the good fibers from there. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. Because you'll probably find like your clients are so educated now. They're up on their SNPs. They know they've mm -hmm. got a food to SNP and then they're going and buying bifidobacteria. But without feeding the bifidobacteria the right foods, it's going to be almost impossible to get enough in there. They're yeah. not going to thrive. Wow. 
Yeah. That's good to know. Because a lot of people, you know, have been trained to the health in the bottle concept, right? If you have something wrong, you go to the doctor, you get a pill, you get a, a liquid, whatever, you take it. And so they take that mentality and move it over into more of the functional health spectrum and the nutrition spectrum. And it's like, well, just, okay, probiotics, I need more of that. Give me it in a bottle. I need more fiber. What about Metamucil? Oh, Metamucil is not so good because it has other garbage in it. What about, you know, just taking some other kind of fiber? So it's really a lot more than just taking probiotics and fiber. It's a matter of eating the right foods to encourage this. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, when I'm saying fiber, I'm just meaning any carbohydrates that are long enough that they're not broken down in our small intestine. <laughs> so it's, it's a range. So things like lettuce, right? Things like green leafy vegetables, the red bell pepper, all of those foods. That's what you're talking about with fiber. You're not talking about just you have to eat, you know, wheat and whatever people typically think of as high fiber foods as grains and, and, um, you know, psyllium and things like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, and actually, so when, when you comb over some studies, you might come across several studies that show that we can increase our bifidobacterium by eating more fiber. But what they have not been able to find is that eating more fiber produces more butyrate specifically in the gut. And I believe that this is because we really need, because um, separate studies have shown that we need those colorful plant chemicals to actually produce the, the butyrate. So those blue foods, the orange foods, we need that to actually feed those that whole colony that's that's grandmothered by the bifido um and so we need both of those things and where do you get those things um vegetables <laughs> the favorite food group <laughs> <laughs> yeah and and so you know even if even if for some reason you can't do the orange or the blue vegetables right now um know that the chlorophyll in the green vegetables is covering up just like how leaves change in the fall you know, they changed uh, the chlorophyll's gone and it reveals those other colors of the, the plant nutrients that are in there. Mm. Um, same with our vegetables, right? So when you're consuming, say, let's go back to bok choy again, um, there are there are other colors that are kind of covered up by green. If you're getting green, you're almost getting most of the rainbow, if that makes any sense. Not to say that the blue foods are not amazingly healthful foods. Yeah, I love that. I love hearing that because people go, oh, I can't tolerate this. I have a I have a nightshade sensitivity, so I can't eat tomatoes and bell peppers and an eggplant. I can't eat those things. And so what can I do that's different? And you're saying that if you have intolerances to some of those other foods, you can eat enough greens to make that up. Right. So if, if it's like, well, if they're saying, oh, I can't eat vegetables because I can't eat, you know, these vegetables, then just say, okay, we'll eat all the vegetables except for those vegetables um, Got it. and just try to, to make some progress with what they can eat. Got it. So if you are looking at gut tests for your clients, right, um, if they have decreased acromancia or decreased colincella um, and decreased bifido or decreased short chain fatty acids, it it would be great and so leveraged for them to be able to tolerate more plant foods or to have some delicious, wonderful recipes, some food support um, from us so that it's not just telling them what not to consume, which arguably is very important, right. but also supporting them to be able to, to consume more things. Because if those bacteria are low, it's a good bet that they're not getting enough of a spectrum yeah. of fiber. Absolutely. Absolutely. Great point. And those are the ones that are that are shown to help 
help your clients improve their insulin sensitivity, lose weight, lower the lousy cholesterol, <laughs> um, <laughs> those, those things. So those are beneficial bacteria to have in abundance. Great. That's great. So I want to ask you about the acidity and alkalinity of the digestive tract. The acidity of the, the environment is different from one part to the next. And so we want an acidic stomach, but we want an alkaline uh, pH in the, the small intestine, right? So stomach acidic, it has to get alkalized. There's things in process we all know about that help to do that. But what happens if that gets reversed? What happens if that's not really what's going on? Right. So there's such a complex signaling that, that goes on when we eat food, right? From the moment when we put something in our mouth, right? There's chemical signaling and whatever other types of signaling as well that occur. And part of this is there are feedback loops that happen, mm -hmm. right? So let's assume, let's go with stomach acid. Um, if there is not enough stomach acid, then like the bolus of food when it's released into the small intestine isn't going to be acidic enough to trigger enough bile to be released from the liver. And the bile from the liver being very alkaline helps to alkalinize the small intestine, helps to make things move through at a good rate, um, and just really makes the environment in there appropriate. So we want to have a really alkaline and largely empty, most of the time, small intestine. You want to have an acidic stomach when it's appropriate um, so that all of this signaling can take place. And this then signals the pancreatic enzymes, the liver enzymes, the brush border enzymes in our small intestine, all these things that are helping us to tolerate foods um, and helping us to have a robust mucosa and immune response in there to help protect us too. Um, so the, the environments in there are very important. And if the if the small intestine environment through this, either through the signaling not working correctly, through the stomach not being acidic enough, through maybe not having enough bile for whatever other reason, right, because things can be compounding, um, then it's supposed to be an aerobic environment, so an oxygenated environment, like water, right? But what it can become is an anaerobic environment where the bacteria that are supposed to be in our large intestine will then move into the small intestine and it becomes anaerobic and it's an unhealthy environment. We won't be able to absorb our nutrients as well. The mucosa will begin to degrade. Um, our immunity gets affected. This, the, we get different signals um, to upregulate and downregulate things when, when bacteria where they're not supposed to be, right? That just makes sense. Mm. Um, and so the environments can get, can get altered and that can just kind of beget different bacterial colonies growing where they don't belong. So let me let me summarize this. It sounds like, okay, the pH is super important. Yeah. We need an acidic stomach, not just for digesting protein and breaking down minerals like we think about, but also for triggering the release of bile, which then supports us in alkalizing that bolus. Mm -hmm. And also with fat, of course, fat emulsion yeah. and all. And, and then it's loaded with garbage that the liver just put in it to take out. So there's a lot that's to be said there, right? So right. when the small intestine is too acidic, what are some of those things? You said, you mentioned one, you said that some of those uh, in the bacteria that should be growing in the large intestine go, hey, I'll grow here because it's nice and acidic. It works, right? What mm -hmm. else happens there? 
that when when we have an acidic small intestine. Yeah, so our motility gets decreased in two ways. Um, the the bile being so alkaline is is a motility agent for the small intestine. And what can happen when when it's too acidic in there is that just isn't working as well. And if those bacteria are sort of growing in the wrong place, um, it can actually damage our migrating motor complex itself. So our smooth muscle contractions, um, our nerves in there. Um, and so then that will also slow the motility in another way. And hey, that makes it even a better home for those bacteria. Oh. Coincidence? <laughs> I think they like it like that. Um, and it also helps us to not absorb our nutrients as well. Yeah. Uh, because we, we need the correct environment to be able to pull all of those nutrients um, across the gut lining. So it's a lot. And SIBO, anybody? <laughs> it sounds like the perfect, that's basically what's making up SIBO. So yeah. so you can actually have, this is what I'm getting from what we're talking about here. When stomach acid is low, that can actually facilitate the growth of these organisms where they shouldn't be and then the, the the manifestations of people, a SIBO, everybody's heard of SIBO back in, you know, the day, nobody ever heard of it, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Now it's like the household word, but it's happening partially as a result of this low stomach acid. Yeah, there's a lot of other factors, but that low stomach acid creating us an acidic environment in the small intestine because we're not getting enough bile, get it, not digesting fats, ha, and then these guys grow out of control. And then when you eat them, tell us why, or when you eat food, why one of the first symptoms that people get with this out of balance microbiome in the small intestine is bloating. Mm -hmm. So, well, basically one of the only things that can cause bloating in our bodies other than just our, our gallt, like our, our lymphatic tissue um, swelling is bacteria producing gas or whatever it is that they produce their byproducts from eating our food for us, right? And so um, if we are not able to digest something well, there will be a colony of bacteria that grow to digest it for us. And that's just what happens. We're basically feeding them. So our brush border enzymes, which I think I mentioned earlier when I was talking about the signaling, are so important for those mid-chain carbohydrates. And we all produce different amounts of different types of the brush border enzymes, but they are signaled by our pancreatic enzymes, our liver enzymes, and our stomach acid, and our digestive hormones as well. And so when that's all working really well, we're going to be digesting those FODMAPs, those middle chain carbs, as well as we personally can. And that's, you know, all that I would want for myself or for anybody, right, is to be the best that I can be. Um, and we're all going to be different. So some of us might be able to eat a raw onion. Some of us might be good at something else, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, we're good at other things. And that's the raw funny. onion digesting contest. Who's best? <laughs> <laughs> We've all got different skills. And and like, that's fine, right? So if if, there, if you find that you're eating something that, that gives you those symptoms, you've either eaten too much of it or it's the food that you can't tolerate right now. And you know that those symptoms are from bacteria eating it for you. That's the only thing those symptoms are from. Right. So just to clarify, you know, we hear a lot about people going on SIBO diets and, you know, low fat diets and controlling the carbohydrates. This is the science behind why that's so important. And we need to, instead of going in like the medical profession typically does is, oh, we have a bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine. Instead of thinking about why is that happening, how do we make them move on down if they belong in the large intestine? If they are true pathogens, we want to get rid of them. But 
the point is it doesn't seem like that's the only approach, right? And we see it all the time. I don't know about you, but in my practice, what I see all the time is people who've been treated for SIBO and they've taken the antibiotics and they're not better. Yeah. And a couple of the reasons is this migrating motor complex hasn't been addressed and we're not looking at the stomach acid yeah. and looking at how to improve the stomach acid production. Exactly. In short, we're not looking at the context. It's like knowing that your foot hurts, but not knowing that there's an elephant standing on it. That's a great analogy. I love it. The actual context needs to be addressed. And that's kind of why I want to move past the whole SIBO thing. Because really with SIBO, you're going to take a test or your client's going to take a test. It's going to measure the amount out of balance that something is. And that's the information that you get. You're not going to get information about which bacteria are likely to be involved, which lifestyle factors are contributing to this, what their migrating motor complex is even doing. All of this is only through experiential, through you talking to them and getting their feedback about their own body. And then you can address it with with these things that we're talking about. Yes. And so all of these are are, uh, connected is what I want to say. I don't generally do those tests. They're usually a breath test and what they're measuring is hydrogen or, or methane gas that's produced by these bugs. And so if, if you mm-hmm. eat something and it feeds these guys a whole bunch of of food and then they spit out this gas, guess who gets bloated? <laughs> Not them, you, right? And so that's the thing we have to be looking at with people. And when I teach how to get the digestion balanced, we start at the top. Mm-hmm. We don't start with where the symptoms are presenting. We start at the top and we we address all the imbalances from top down, including head, mm-hmm. because a lot of times the digestive problems are coming from somebody eating under stress, totally. which has an abundance of cortisol being produced, which shuts this down. It shuts down the production of bile. It shuts down the valves between the sections of the, the uh, digestive tract. So we start there. Yeah. It shuts down the signaling and everything. Exactly, exactly. And chewing, right? You mentioned chewing. So what else? What what else do we do to improve the stomach acid, you know? Chew, chewing, eating. Okay, well, I'm going to go for something very simple. Yes. We use over a liter of water every day in producing stomach acid. Whoa. I didn't know that. You know, how many of our clients are like taking zinc supplements and, you know, have some food rituals that they do. They're just not drinking enough water the rest of the day to have that water available to make stomach acid. I love it because that's one of the basics when we're teaching people is like, we always want to find these, these unique nerdy solutions so that we can be the hero. But that simple thing, like you got to drink more water. And you know, it's interesting you say that because I've worked with folks who have been in a year long program with us and they're like, okay, we're reviewing it about six to eight months in. And like this, this problem doesn't seem to be going away. So then I go back to the basics. I say, okay, how much water are you drinking? Mm-hmm. And they say, well, I'm up to three glasses. Like how much do you weigh? Like 200 pounds? Ain't going to cut it. But even uh, kids uh, aren't uh, drinking uh, enough water, really. But even kids are not. They're not. They're not drinking enough water. Yeah. So I love that you... Yeah, and then we're going like, what's the mystery? What are my snips? Like, right. which kind of like, there's a zinc with, with seven different types of zinc that people are like, well, this one will be better. It'll fix the thing. Like, well, let's go back to water. Let's go back to water. Let's rewind here. Yeah, and also the other yeah. basic, and I'm a big fan. In between meals. Yes, in between meals, right. But... You've got to eat in a nice, relaxed environment. Yeah. And so if we just go in and we take a breath test and we give them antibiotics or oregano, arguably 
I'm not sure if that's even better, right? It's still kind of an allopathic approach. We're not addressing the environment and we're not doing a service, a deep service to our clients, helping them to change their lives at a deep level. It's heavy duty, right? It's like going back to the beginning. It's not just a matter of taking more probiotic, which probiotic should I take? How many strains are in the probiotic? Mm -hmm. How many, you know, units are there? It's a matter of of having the right environment and getting all of this cleaned up. And it's not just a matter of, oh, these things cause these symptoms. Who would people don't like? Embarrassing gas and bloating and the pants don't fit at the end of the day. <laughs> but bottom line is heart disease is more is even more insidious and dangerous. So we need to look at the whole picture. Yeah. And we need to look at the microbiome balance, not just as a nice thing to do, but an imperative thing to do. Yeah, exactly. And it might be because food is something that we encounter multiple times a day, every day for our lives, except for those short periods where we may be fasting, right? Um, it may be something that needs to sort of continually be monitored and addressed and taken care of like we are stewards of, of that environment. Yeah. Why is it challenging to restrict foods? Obviously, there's reasons that it's challenging to do that. But what happens when people get to a point where they don't, they don't really tolerate certain foods and food groups? How do we handle that? Yeah, so it's, I mean, like anything deep like this, it is a complicated issue, right? And we are all individuals and in our individual circumstances. And so there can be so many different reasons why a person has decided to cut out certain food groups. I think in, in like an overarching idea, um, it is a big focus on which foods are harming us rather than what we can do within ourselves, within our gut microbiome, within our biochemistry to be able to metabolize foods better and to, to be able to tolerate the world around us, which is really what we're doing with foods. We're taking the world around us, we're chewing it and we're swallowing it. <laughs> Um, it, yeah. And right. I think in the past, we've had this thing where it was our immune system is kind of our minions and they're standing on guard and they're ready to, you know, fight the invaders and the immune system versus the bacteria. And uh, also sort of conquering and extracting things from nature. I'm going to eat this carrot and I'm going to absorb like everything from the carrot and I am the conqueror of carrots instead of I'm just going to eat this carrot. The chemicals in this food are going to send signals throughout my body and signals throughout microbiome. Those bacteria are going to eat most of the carotenoids. I might absorb some of them and the rest of them are going to work with this whole colony of, of my gut. And through that, we're going to have metabolic change. It's not just through like, I chew carrot, I absorb carbohydrates and nutrients. Like it's, it's not like that. We're part of the world. I love that concept. I love that concept because it, what it really says is it's an, an ecosystem. And we all work together to take that food from out there and get it into our cells, you know, the nutrients into our cells where they belong. And it's a complicated process how that works. We're doing it. We're chewing it. We're putting out enzymes to break it down. But then the bacteria, the good bacteria colonies that live in our gut are saying, hey, I'm going to help you with this. I'm going to pull some of this out. I'm going to support you in getting the most out of this food. 
Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. And maybe they're not doing it to support us. Maybe they're just living their right, own they're little selfish. lives. Right? They're just, you know, they're, they just want to have the carotenoids. But, you know, we've, we've evolved to work together for the greater yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. And we can believe that they're doing it for our greater good, right? <laughs> right. We can just believe it, right? Yeah. We don't have to go around thinking about the selfish bacteria. Yeah, <laughs> no. yeah I love it. Yeah, whatever works, right? It. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so sometimes we get into a situation where where we end up restricting our foods and that has cascading effects on our gut microbiome mm-hmm. because um, yeah. they need those those colorful plant chemicals to be able to make those postbiotics, which great. Now we can buy postbiotics in a capsule. Like ever think of making them yourself? Um, yeah, so we can... Oh, explain what postbiotics are, because not everybody knows what a... Po- we heard of... Yeah, prebiotics. Probiotics, and, right? and we've now... Yeah. post Prebiotics have been around, FOS and inulin and things like that for a long yeah. time. But these postbiotics is a relatively new concept. Yeah, so postbiotics are basically fancy word for stuff bacteria makes. Okay, and so, like for instance, uh, this morning I was looking at a product that was a postbiotic from Lactobacillus ruteri. So, Lactobacillus ruteri produces some compounds that discourage H. pylori. Fantastic. Mm, nice. Um, along with, actually, um, along with, gosh, um, Bacillus subtilis, Lactobacillus bulgaricus, Lactobacillus casei, Lactobacillus plant, uh, paracasei, plantarum, rhamnosus, and salivarius. So all of these bugs discourage H. pylori. And so what they've done is they've um, grown Lactobacillus ruteri and they've extracted their, hmm. their metabolites, these postbiotics, these things that they make, and put it in a capsule that we can now take. Hmm. Yeah. And I mean, that's good in... If, if, it's, if we can't think of any other options, that's good. Or if we can't tolerate any other bacteria or if there's something going on, then it's good to have those tools. But what would be ultimately the best would be to um, steward an ecosystem within ourselves where we naturally discourage those opportunistic bacteria. Yeah, yeah. And encourage those good guys. To grow where they're supposed yeah, to grow. Exactly. Sometimes they grow where they're not supposed to be in the case of SIBO. Right. And so when we're working with clients, we want to be able to encourage them to have as much of a variety in their diet as possible to encourage as much biodiversity. But on the one hand, what do we do if they don't tolerate oxalates or lectins or histamines or you name it? Yeah, well, let's talk about some of those kind of big objections first, right? Because your health practitioners that are listening to this recording, and this is probably what you hear. Maybe someone is avoiding oxalates, and so there are certain foods that they cannot eat. And the good news is that bacteria can break down oxalates. So if you can get your clients to ferment something with those bacteria, especially if they can do a really controlled ferment that's not exposed to a lot of other bacteria, right? If they're not using a, a yogurt starter or a wild starter, um, and if they're able to, to use just bifidobacteria, for example, you can actually have an oxalate reducing ferment, which is super good news. Not only mm. does it make our nutrients more absorbable, <laughs> back to that thing, which I said I don't want to do, but yeah, so it makes it so that we can absorb our calcium and iron better from those foods. And also if somebody is sensitive to oxalate, it, it can help them to tolerate a wider variety of foods. So tell it's people, that, you know, remind everybody what lectins yeah. are and yeah, good call. why we don't necessarily have to avoid them. Right. Um, that's a good point. So lectins, lectins are 
particularly recently over the past five years or so, they're being super vilified. I don't know if they do anything particularly helpful for us, like phytates do, but lectins are like these kind of sticky particles. I think they're kind of akin to Velcro, gut Velcro. They, <laughs> they go through our bodies and they stick to our mucosa and they can stick there for about three days. Okay, so then let's say we eat some tomatoes today and then we get those lectins sticking around and then we eat some tomatoes tomorrow and then we get those lectins sticking around. And then we get, eat this, so if we're eating the same foods every day, we're just not you know, designed to necessarily do that throughout all seasons of the year to have all the same foods every day, right. um, which you know, it makes sense logically. But also um, our gut mucosa, depending on the robustness of our gut mucosa, we're going to be able to tolerate a different amount of that, right? So, and if you think about tomatoes, I mean, gosh, they're on everything. It might be the only vegetable besides potatoes that a lot of people are consuming, mm-hmm. right? Right. Right. <laughs> Speaking of anti-nutrients, right? So um, th- these these foods can irritate the gut wall, especially if the mucosa is not robust and thick enough. Mm. Yeah. Um, but the good th- fermentation again, right? Of course, um, fermentation can break down the lectins. Like cooking can, but fermentation actually can do it a little bit better. I've seen some studies where they were broken down 90 to 95% in a ferment. Awesome. In a 12-hour ferment. Awesome. So... Uh, we should have fermented yeah. tomatoes. That's awesome. So what about resistant starches? I hear about this all the time. What, um, what about the re- resistant starches? How do they benefit and where do we get them? But yeah, so we have different types of resistant starch. We've got resistant starch one, resistant starch two, resistant starch three. So resistant starch one is in whole grains, beans, lentils, and peas. I'm finding, you know, most people are not eating those. By the time by the time they go online and search for the gut whisperer, they're not like they're not eating any normal food. So <laughs> um, we don't really work with resistant starch type one. But you'll find most of the studies that are referenced about resistant starch are focusing on resistant starch one. Um, and the only real place where I end up using that is with cooked lentils. Occasionally, a person can consume, you know, sprouted cooked lentils, and that's something that they still want to eat. Um, and then there's resistant starch too, which is when you eat like a green banana and you get that g- gross feeling on your teeth, it's <laughs> yeah. like the chalky thing. Or if you imagine eating a raw potato, which I've done on the farm, you're not supposed to do that. Um, you get that same feeling. That's the taste of resistant starch. You cannot cook that. You cook that, it's gone. If you're doing that to a potato or to rice, particularly white rice or that purple forbidden rice, and you put it back in the fridge after, those foods will then make something called resistant starch three. It's like a recrystallized starch, but only those foods. So, you know, bananas, plantains, sweet potato, those resistant starches are destroyed by cooking. It's really important to know. Okay. And that's starch. That's type two. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 And, and then, the type ones, go back to that again, because yeah. type ones are in lentils and grains and stuff that we typically would eat cooked. Uh, does cooking destroy that starch or no? Um, yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Oh. But it doesn't destroy all of it. Hmm. You know, so if you have lentils that have been sprouted and then they're kind of cooked to the point where you would eat them, but they're still, you know, not not super soft, you're still going to get some resistant starch in there, if that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. So a lot of people who are like, oh, I'm going to eat lentils and beans because they're resistant starch. 
they're not getting the resistant starch because they're cooking them. And I'm cooking them for a long time yeah. in the case of beans, which we want to because beans tend to be the worst sources of lectins. And in fact, kidney beans tend to be so high in lectins that you don't ever want to eat those raw because it could be very dangerous. Yeah, exactly. So, and also like how many of us are getting all our beans dried and then cooking them and then like right. we're getting this stuff in a can. So by the time it's in the can, yeah. I'm not sure about the resistant starch content, like starch. straight up. Okay, yeah. got it. <laughs> Okay, got it. But the resistant starch too then are things that we typically don't eat raw but could, like sweet potatoes, yeah. um, green bananas, yeah. <laughs> which don't taste very good. What about plantains? Same thing. Yeah, be raw. Same yeah. thing. Yeah. Okay. So you do that. You could eat those raw. And then um, then we have type three, which is what people are hearing about all the time. Cook your potatoes and rice and stick it in the fridge and then take it out 24 hours later and you have resistant starch. Yes. Um, okay. So just a plug for vegetables. If you have a <laughs> potato, I mean, potatoes are great. That's great. And for like someone who I don't want to talk to about this stuff, like my dad, I'll just make him a potato salad and know that I've done something. Um, okay. But you must know that like a medium sized potato, you do this whole procedure. It takes, you know, 48 hours and you're just, you know, sciencing it up. You're going to maybe get five grams of resistant starch. Okay, and the amount that has been shown to actually make a difference in the gut is much more than that. Um, some studies that have shown um, real changes in the gut flora and in the metabolism, they're studying 28 grams of resistant starch per day. You know, they're, wow. they're feeding people potato starch, this kind of thing. Uh, getting that from this cooked and cooled potato white rice thing, like you're gonna, that's gonna be your whole food for the whole day. You're not gonna have any. We need to also get it from a yeah. diversity of vegetables. Even though the amount of resistant starch will be negligible, there will also be the whole spectrum of fibers, which are also important for those bacteria. But how are we going to counsel our people to get enough resistant starch? What is your recommendation there? Uh, ultimately, helping our clients to tolerate more fruits and vegetables, whatever the issue is that's preventing them from, from eating these foods. Um, that's got to be the ultimate goal so that they can get them from foods. In the short term, green banana flour, as long as it hasn't been heated, so if you can find a good source, green banana flour can be added to smoothies. It can be added to wraps, like we were just talking about. Um, you know, it can mm. be even added to salad dressings. Okay, that sounds good. So when you say the fruits and veggies and adding more of them, so you're saying that there's a small amount of resistant starch and is it type one, two or three that are in there? Probably type two based on what you said. Yeah. Yeah. And then how do we know if we're getting the 28 grams? Right. Well, I guess there's no way short of, you know, sending all our food to, to a lab. lab right. It's different. Like it depends when it's picked, where it's grown which season it was picked in, yeah. all of these things are going to affect not just the resistant starch content, but the anthocyanins and all the other, the other things that our bacteria need. Um, so we can't really say a sweet potato has X, Y, Z, um, but we can know when we feel better and we mm. can know that we're, you know, getting the most that we can reasonably get in. Wow. So we need to be able to eat a wide variety of plant foods, a colorful plant foods that have all this stuff that feed our bifidobacter that or, or provide them or um, provide, you know, bifidobacter to get the butyrate. So we have all this stuff we want to accomplish. We have resistant starches. We want to improve mm -hmm. 
a person's ability to tolerate these foods using the fermentation processes we just talked about. Is that, in a nutshell, what we're trying to do? We're trying to, I mean, the ultimate goal is to get people to eat more food, fresh, colorful fruits and veggies, yeah. right? Yeah, and if, if they want to, but the fruits and veggies are bothering them, right? then this is one tool that we can add to help them to ultimately get to the place where they can prepare them in a variety of different ways. We need the diversity of our microbiome to tolerate these foods, and yet it's the very constituents from these foods that help us to have diversity in our microbiome. Mm, okay, so that's what we're aiming for, is the diversity in the microbiome. We get that by the diversity in the food with lots and lots and lots of colorful plant foods. Yeah, and in those colors, that's where the magic is. Like, I think our focus on resistant starch is too much. I'm reading the studies yeah. on the resistant yeah. starch, and it's showing that we have more butyrate-producing bacteria, but it's not showing that we have more butyrate. Hmm. Yes. Why is that? So, well, the studies on the colorful constituents of fruits and veggies, when added on their own, have shown to increase the butyrate Mm. specifically. So I believe that we need both, which, oh my gosh, real whole plants have. (laughs) We're coming back Um, down to it. The importance of this, right? And the importance of maybe a keto diet with 80% animal fat is probably not the best way to get it because there's not enough room for the colorful plants. Yeah, like, can can I just tell you some things that quercetin does in the gut? You've probably heard about quercetin. It's allergy season. It's on my mind. Yeah. Okay, so it can improve bacterial balance. It can reduce the bacteria that are associated with obesity. There are specific bacteria that that have been associated with obesity since the 80s, right? And so, mm. yeah, we're talking about eubacterium and some of the bacillus bacteria. Um, they can, quercetin actually helps to attenuate the Firmicutes bacteroidetes ratio, right? Remember how we've, we've probably... Most of us have heard that if you have too many Firmicutes, it, you know, it helps you to gain too much weight. Um, well, quercetin, when we get it from real plant foods, can help us to, to work with that ratio. Um, quercetin can help to decrease the pH in the large intestine, which is good. We want the large intestine to be a largely acidic environment. And quercetin can help improve butyrate production, which is kind of what we were talking about mm. here. And so it does all of those things. And then it might be that there's, you know, a client that can't tolerate onions or can't do so many things because of those foods bothering them. You can see that if you can kind of bridge it for yeah, them. Like yeah, like sulfur. And, yeah. yeah. Okay, so we've yeah. got the idea that we don't have to focus, focus, focus on where are we going to get this resistant starch. We have to focus, focus, focus on increasing the diversity of the diet to include more of these colorful vegetables, greens, yellows, oranges, blues, purples, and all that to be able to build the diversity in the gut so that we can create more butyrate. But what about, like, I'll play devil's advocate. What if I just go buy a butyrate supplement? Well, sometimes that's a great idea. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, let's say you're having a lot of trouble sleeping. Um, you've You've been working hard. You've done the basics, right? You've worked it out. You're you're working with the pillars. You're eating healthy food. You're getting exercise. You're doing everything that that should be involved in reducing, let's say, um, some glucose metabolism issues that are really bothering you. 
and you're having trouble sleeping and you have some weight gain that you just haven't been able to reverse. You've covered the basics. You're lying in bed at night awake. <laughs> yeah. The butyrate supplement might help. Right. Like this is when the band-aid is when it's, what it's for. Yeah. So yeah. It's not a long-term, yeah. right? That's not what you want to think about long-term. You want to increase the diversity. And it, you and I both worked with people who have mm. struggles with uh, digesting a lot of these foods and they have limited severely their gut, you know, mm -hmm. their, their food. And we do recommend a butyrate supplement. Totally. And when you yeah. see how that can help them um, decrease leaky gut and their sensitivity to all these other foods, you can see how that's such a leveraged thing to add in the beginning there to help them get through this, this very difficult phase for them. Yeah, um, it is difficult. But yeah, it in is. terms of like their time with you, that's, that's a great thing to do when it's needed. But in the end, do you really want to be teaching people that they need a supplement from the outside world to be okay? Or do you want to help them to work with the community in their own body right. to, to be a self-sufficient Okay. So what other things um, contain or stimulate? You've mentioned um, there's certain herbs. Um, I think it was cranberry, not cranberry, um, pomegranate extract. Am I getting that confused with something else? So some of them that actually increase the body's... Oh, it was green tea, right? Green tea extract. Mm. Yes. Okay. So yeah, green tea extract can be one way that that your clients can get some of these phytochemicals to help them to produce more butyrate. And you can take it from the capsule. So the green tea, you'll probably get clients that want to drink green tea. <laughs> um, and unfortunately, <laughs> the amount that has been shown to help produce yeah. more butyrate is 10 cups of green tea per day. So, oh, Lordy. Lord. So this is another, <laughs> that's a lot of caffeine, no. even though there's not yeah, a lot of caffeine. Exactly. In. So taking one thing that's like, oh, I can have one cup of this. Um, so it depends where they're at. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like if if they're in a really stable place, we can all have one one cup of something and know that we don't need the maximum amount. <laughs> right. We don't need the amount that's been shown in a study to you know it's, a little bit is still helpful. But if they're in a situation where you're trying to sort of hack the system, um, yeah. And supplements have their place, just like drugs have their place. It's not supplements yeah. instead of specific foods. Yeah. It's to supplement the foods and to supplement while you're building up the tolerance to the more variety of food. Is that right? That's how I think about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. All right. Yeah. So let's jump into the enzymes. Yeah, those guys, pro enzymes, <laughs> those guys that I never can say. So go for it. Maybe you can say it better. Than um, yeah, sure. Okay. So they are in those blue foods, right? The anthocyanins, not to be confused with the anthocyanidins, which are those things that are in cranberries. So the anthocyanins are in those, those blue and red foods. And, you know, people might be saying, hey, I can't eat blueberries or strawberries or raspberries, which are quoted as if they Google it, they're gonna, that's what they're going to find. Um, you can help them to consume red radishes, kohlrabi, kale, Mm. cabbage, red cabbage. Maybe there's a way that you can make a red cabbage ferment with them, or maybe they can tolerate the red radishes. Maybe they're working on some hormone things and that seems like that would be an awesome food for them. I don't know. Yeah. If they can just tolerate one, they don't need to have all of it. Nice. And spinach. If they can handle the oxalates, spinach is really good for the anthocyanins and it's also really good for the carotenoids, which the gut also needs. And a lot of people can't eat those orange things like mangoes and sweet potatoes because of the glucose impact, right? So if they're able to tolerate 
uh, lacinato kale and spinach. Those are some good choices mm-hmm. for that, for both. Yeah. Awesome. And what's the claim to fame for the anthocyanins? Right. Well, basically it helps the gut produce more butyrate. Butyrate. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. We're almost out of time. And this is so fascinating. There's so much great information here. Just say a little bit about phytoestrogens. Yes. Okay. So some people want the phytoestrogens. Some people don't want the phytoestrogens, right? So there's something called diadzen, which is an isoflavin from soy, which is converted by our gut bacteria to equal, which is the actual thing that is the phytoestrogen, if that makes sense. Yep. Only about a third of us have the bacteria that will do this. So you might have clients that want the phytoestrogens and they're eating all this stuff and nothing is happening. Or you might have clients that don't want the phytoestrogens and they're avoiding things that wouldn't be bothering them in the first, do you know what I mean? So yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. So that's good to know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What about, does our gut, you know, the gut bacteria needs to be intact, right? In order for the the conversions, right? In the flax, the brassicas, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. And all of these things that we've talked about today that we mentioned in passing, the sulforaphane, this diazen compound, um, the the lignins that are also the, the phytoestrogens, like they are all converted in the gut. We need a healthy gut microbiome to convert these things properly. It's not that there are these compounds in the food and we eat the food and we absorb it and that's what happens. No, it's actually something that happens with our whole colony of gut microbes. So what does taking an antibiotic do to this? (laughs) Um, Okay, so there's a bit of a misunderstanding that we all kind of have just from allopathy, right? Just from the way that we've been raised and the news that we've been watching or whatever, where we think that we just take an antibiotic and we kill all the bacteria equally, And then we can take a probiotic later and kind of start from scratch. Um, What's unfortunate is that all our bacteria are different and they all have different coping mechanisms for an attack like that. Mm. And what will happen is some of them will be very much destroyed by this. And some of them, particularly those gram-negative bacteria that have like a double cell wall um, or other other sorts of defenses, some of them are able to, like the strep bacteria, really quickly become immune to something. And then they're able to actually pass that, not just to the other strep in the gut, but to other bacteria in the gut in general, um, mm. to pass those that toolbox of immunity around. Um, and so you'll end up with not, not just less bacteria in general, but you'll end up with kind of like a wackadoodle balance of bacteria. Mm-hmm. And super bugs. Exactly. So if you have been making yogurt or if, if you've ever worked with me making yogurt, I'm always saying that the bacteria can double every half hour. So you got to taste your yogurt. And when it tastes like it's done, put it in the fridge right away. Well, same thing happens in your gut, right? So it's an exponential thing. So if you end up with too much of something, which they're usually not the bacteria that we want, (laughs) (laughs) just say that much and then way not enough of something then then those that that difference exponentially is kind of doubled every half hour in an ideal gut then you end up with quite an imbalance 
in short order. Wow, there's so much here. <laughs> there's so much complexity to this microbiome and the diversity yeah. and the foods and how to support it. And I know you've learned a lot here from Steph today. So it may even change the way you look at gut tests and gut health if you look at it from this perspective, and that's a good thing. So if you were to give our listeners, our health practitioner listeners, and even some of our, our consumer, you know, client, patient listeners who are sneaking in and really taking this in, what are a couple of action steps that we can take based on what you talked about today? What do you, how would you summarize mm. that? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So what's coming to me is if there are some things that you cannot tolerate or that your client cannot tolerate figure out what underlying imbalance is causing this issue and see if you can help to resolve that underlying imbalance. There will always be someone in our gut to consume the foods that we are not digesting well. If we cannot break something down, some kind of species or critter will grow to break it down for us. And they are actually there to help with a problem that exists. So we need to solve that problem and then go on to lead a full life where we can eat a variety of fruits and veg. Variety of, and when we say a variety of colorful foods, we're not talking M&Ms. We're talking, oh. <laughs> right? We're talking, because nobody should be eating that stuff because it's feeding the people we don't want to feed down there in our gutters. So yeah, so I think that that's, that's great advice. And eating a variety of fruits and veggies is what I take away. And then for those who can't tolerate right now is learning how to create ferments from them. Now, if people want to reach you, I know that, you know, you mentioned your group, but I know you have this amazing community called the... Um, the Friendly Flora Collective. Um, and I think, I know it's for people to learn how to do this for themselves, which of course, all of our practitioners need to do it for themselves. But if, will that be a good place for the practitioners that are listening to be able to learn how to support their clients in making these amazing ferments? Mm, yeah, we do have quite a few practitioners on the calls, which is amazing because people bring a lot of very interesting ideas and we have a chance to talk it out, which I, which I deeply appreciate. I'm so grateful for that community that we have built. Um, so we're on friendlyfloracollective.com and it's just, it's a monthly membership. We have recipes, we have a group call where we can kind of get into these topics and discuss. Yeah, thank you. And thank you. So if you miss the live, you can always go and, you know, get the recordings and watch it and learn. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast and got as much out of it as I did it's a fascinating world, the microbiome and the organisms that live within us and all the amazing functions and what they do to help us to become the best version of ourselves, to optimize all the body systems. They're so important. And this has been an amazing episode. So I want you to think about how you can talk to your patients, talk to your clients about how to get their gut in order, how to optimize their microbiome for the best health they possibly can live. You have the power for helping people to change their lives. You have the power to help people to change their health by making better choices, day-to-day -day choices. We can do this. You can do this. 
So if you want to be the best practitioner you can be, you need tools. You need more tools in your toolbox. We put together a guide, the Functional Food Guide, that I think you're going to love. So head on over to the show notes page, click the link, and download our free guide as our gift for you. And for more resources and programs and things to support you as a functional health practitioner, head on over to INEMethod.com. And until next time, shine on. Thanks for listening to Reinvent Healthcare. We are part of the movement to change healthcare for the better. If you liked this episode, leave a rating and a review. And for more resources to support you in growing a thriving and fulfilling practice, visit our website at inemethod.com.